Hey everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm Brandon David, your host. Really great show today. We have Matt of Arcadian Fund, which has made a lot of great investments in companies, uh, many of which have been on this show before. Kush Bottles, BDS, Work Trees, Baker, Flow Hub, Meadow, all ancillary on the technology side. He's now getting into the touching the plant stuff with Fund 2 as well. We talk about his very fascinating framework, the three phases of cannabis, and why we're now in the second phase of investing in cannabis. Uh, it's a really great, great episode if you want to learn about early stage technology investing in the cannabis industry. Speaking of early stage, if you've started a company, if you have a new company and you need your some help, feel like you're a little underwater, please let us know. Balanced Advisor is a new company producer and Eric and I have put together. We're helping companies with a lot of different stuff, video content, CFO level stuff, operations, raising capital, pitch, performa, story. If you need some help, let us know, balancedadvisor.com. All right, guys, let's get into the episode with Matt of Arcadian. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. Arcadian, it's a conversation I've been looking to have, looking forward to having for some time. Uh, but let's just start on an easy one. What is Arcadian? Uh, Arcadian is a fund, um, but also a platform um, with a few different components, also being a uh, capital and advisory side of the business and a general partnership entity uh, that really is set up to uh, help people uh, gain exposure to the growth of the cannabis sector, uh, primarily with ancillary non-plant touching companies. Um, and uh, it's a partnership that um, is looking to uh uh, continue a, a successful effort in doing so. Got it. And how long have you been doing this? When did you start? We started the fund about a year and a half ago. The first uh, deals we did in the space were about in 2013 and 14 um, through some real estate efforts uh, that dated even before that. Um, and, uh, for a couple of years after really had looked at this industry through a real estate lens through a prior fund I was involved with and, um, and that led to where we are today. Yeah. Some really interesting comparisons, particularly with the touching the plant and, and sort of real estate plays. Do you see a lot of comparisons with the ancillary or, or technology type? No, not really. Um, Brandon, it's sort of, uh, we get the real estate question a lot. And, you know, five, six, seven years ago, there was real estate that was in areas that did not have great development opportunities. And uh, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, those are the municipalities and cities that were looking to find new ways to bring in tax dollars. And those were the first that uh, really started to open up their land and entitlements and zoning for cannabis. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, if you looked at it a year ago you or two, you start thinking, okay, well, now the industry is more mature. Um, owning the real estate makes sense because you can get these, uh, you know, larger rents um, given the nature of the industry. So from that standpoint, if you had something, it made uh, a lot of sense, or if you didn't, it made a lot of sense to try to get some real estate uh, to be a landlord. Now, um, 
you look at this and uh, people that own the real estate or need real estate to do their business side of the cannabis industry, um, it's starting to be mature. And uh, those valuations are starting to be corrected and become more realistic. And the regulatory bodies, both city, state, um, and soon federally, um, especially now with hemp, you're really starting to see um, things start to normalize a little bit more. So from a real estate perspective, um, being at sort of peak real estate cycle, uh, the difficult thing for me in doing real estate in the space is that you still have to buy real estate regardless of who your tenant or what the use is going to be. It's probably peak of real estate trades. And you're going to have to have an asset that holds value going forward, despite anything to do with cannabis, because the the term with which you're going to get higher than normal rents is going to go away. And uh, that's going to happen very quickly. So I don't think there's any great advantages um, it, unless you can pencil the real estate uh, holding its value on its own. Got it. So if I understand what you said, basically, while cannabis was sort of coming out of the gray market, when it was very early, people were nervous about it, they were getting great premiums for those rents uh, to, to fill those tenants. And now that it's sort of been normalizing, those opportunities are lessening. Is that, is that basically what you're saying? That's correct. I mean, you know, if you'd gone back in 2012, and you had a piece of land, you know, for three, four, five years, you're going to get good use out of it. Um, if you went and bought a, that same piece of land, let's say it's in the desert, uh, you know, now all of a sudden you're making a trade on real estate that, um, you know, is, is in a C location or something like that. Um, if you buy it today's prices and next year, the real estate cycle turns, um, now all of a sudden you have an asset that's worth significantly less with, um, not a lot of upside. So, you know, I think it's uh, still a real estate deal. Um, people that want to buy real estate for cannabis um, need to be doing so with the real estate hat on, not with a cannabis hat. Mm -hmm. Got it. No, that makes sense. And this is kind of part of your thesis about the phases of the cannabis uh, industry. Eric, producer Eric and I were talking about a little bit before the show. There's kind of three phases here, and it's it's maybe the, the sort of most succinct that I've heard it. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you came up with that and, and those different phases? Well, yeah, it sort of happened just uh, organically as we tracked the industry for all these years now. We've seen every market mature in the same way, whether it be California or Colorado or Washington or Canada. Um, and now around the world, you're seeing the same thing. That phase one um, is sometimes the most difficult to get in place because of the uh, varying types of regulatory people and politicians and local uh, 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 council people that have to be involved in that. And that phase involves cultivation, of course, you got to have the hemp or cannabis plant to have any business. Um, you know, much like you've got to find that there's gold in these hills or there's oil underneath these grounds, right? Yep. Um, and I think uh, the other components of that are, are also retail and manufacturing. We see those three as sort of the first three that have to be in play that, um, that usually um, come with a ton of uh, meetings involving politics. Mm -hmm. Then once those start to be in place, um, 
we then see the B2B businesses get built out around it. And those can be things like software or data or media or HR, payroll, compliance, um, these types of uh, services. Think of them in terms in phase two, similar to gold or oil, right? You need the oil field services company, Halliburton. You need the picks and shovels and boots and jeans for the gold miner. Levi jeans still exist, right? Yep. Um, so those those tend to be phase two. And then phase three really is the consumer facing aspect, the B2C type companies, brands, um, you know, all the way down to testing facilities, delivery distribution companies I put in that category, um, so on and so forth. So yeah, again, I think really interesting way to break it up. Uh, when I talk to a lot of investors, they talk about brands and they talk about how brands will win and that's the only thing that has value and eventually they'll sell for many multiples more than, than whatever they are today. But is it too early to pick brands? As I look around, it's really hard to pick the good brands today. If I had to pick some and we talk about the branding aspect a lot as well, you probably can do so with a certain degree of confidence. Um, as a growth investor, as an early stage growth investor, uh, we have the ability to sort of wait until um, we feel like the timing's right in a particular vertical, that there's enough meat on the bone, as they say, to make an investment. When it comes to brands, um, very difficult for us to feel like these brands are in a true growth phase because um, every week it feels like things like distribution and delivery change mm -hmm. um, in states and cities, not to mention the fact that cultivation retail manufacturer continue to have new regulations. Um, so uh, when you think about that, as compared to the fact that the federal guys have said absolutely nothing um, there's just a whole bunch that has to be figured out for us to feel comfortable that brands are in a growth phase. Mm -hmm. Although, as mentioned, there's five or 10 that we could pick and probably have a 90% accurate uh, investment rate if we did the brands today. But I think that because of those reasons and the fact that brands are plant touching businesses, the institutional bigger dollars really can't play there significantly yet. Yep. And um, that lets us kind of uh, feel comfort in the fact that we have an opportunity to invest in these same brands in three, six, nine months when things become a little bit more clear at maybe 5, 10, 15, 20% more. We're happy to make that investment to make sure we get deals that we feel like are going to be around and um, really are in growth phase. The last thing I'll mention is that Think about all the other types of regulatory agencies that are out there, not just um, the federal government, FDA and DEA and these types of people, but think about um, the way that uh, all consumer brands are regulated in highly regulated categories. The feds are going to have things to say about consumer privacy and data and how brands can be packaged and displayed and differentiated. I mean, there's just a million things, not to mention the fact that Fortune 500 companies are going to do their best uh, when they feel like some part of their IP is infringed upon to send cease and desist letters that may or may not even be accurate. But then you have a cannabis brand looking to have to put up a significant amount of dollars to fight a legal battle just because 
some big company has all the money and power to fight those things. And that is a scary thing to us, knowing that some of these brands are going to be a casualty of war they didn't even uh, need to be involved with. Right. Uh, makes sense. And and we largely share the same thesis, um, which brings me to the portfolio. A lot of great companies in it. Kush Bottles, now Kush Co., Work Trees, uh, Baker, now of Tilt, Flow Hub, Meadow. A lot of great technology plays. How did you sort of learn to evaluate and identify good technology opportunities? Because it's, it's quite a bit different than real estate cannabis. It is. And every one of these verticals, even in the technology vertical, has to be uh, evaluated and um, have diligence uh, separately than the next. If you're a point of sale software company or a CRM software company or a seed to sale software company, you know, all are a little bit different. And of course, different than a payroll or HR technology mm-hmm. or a technology. So what you have to do is do your comps. And um, fortunately for us as a growth investor, we typically invest in an A or B round where there's been a couple of rounds of financing, been a couple of years of uh, revenue that we can track. And when you can take a company that's two or three years with revenue, you know, growth every month, you can take that company and layer it on top of a transaction or a trade that a larger company takes Salesforce or Oracle or Google or something like that. What have they bought in the past? What have certain types of software or technology or media traded at before that is truly um, in a, a, a crazy growth phase? Mm-hmm. And um, when you do that, you know, you can take a look at Baker, for example, and that's a company that at the time we invested, um, if it wasn't servicing cannabis and hemp, you know, it probably trades somewhere between a 12 and 15 multiple. Mm-hmm. And um, because of the uh, the risk, which we did the Baker thing a year and a half, two years ago, um, was still a little bit stronger than it, the risk is today. You know, you're able to get these companies at 25 to 50% off based on multiple on valuation uh, 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 terms. So uh, now uh, you're starting to see these companies that are uh, have continued to be leaders, not just trade at 12 to 15 multiples, which is where they should have been, but you're starting to see premiums because they have uh, the largest market share. And these companies now may trade at 17 to 22 multiples. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, speaking of Baker, Tilt happened last week. Are you happy with how that turned out? Any um, behind-the-scenes looks for you guys? Anything that sticks we're out? Big, we're big fans of Joel Milton and the entire Baker team. Have been since day one. Think that they are first in class. And uh, because of the uh, situation that's going on there, uh, it, it's a it's a topic we're going to have to um, uh, not discuss in too <laughs> much depth. Understood. Yeah, but but we we love those guys a lot. Got it. So one of the interesting things about your portfolio, or maybe a little unusual, is you have Meadow, Flow Hub, and Trees, which have a lot of overlap in what they do. How do you sort of reconcile that? And and that's a little different than most investors do it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that, um, you know, this is an emerging industry and we've seen emerging industries play out uh, in many cases over many, many years. 
And when you, um, there is a belief that rising tides lift all ships. And uh, as a growth investor, we don't get involved in seed and angel rounds where a lot of the hands-on work is done. We like to invest in growth, which means, you know, we do get preferred shares, some type of board seat. Uh, but our job is really not to uh, run the business. It's to make sure that all the other great fund investors like ours are involved in the same two or three uh, market leading companies in each of these verticals in order to uh, have the best chance that the consolidation and M&A that's about to happen does um, does so and it's done correctly. Um, so when you have a position in two or three or four companies that are in a similar vertical, that is that's the that's the uh, that was the strategy from day one. Um, make sure these uh, different founders and executives at these companies are thinking about their constituents positively. Um, we know that there's um, a significant amount of companies that have started in 2018 and that will continue to uh, do great things in 2019. Mm -hmm. And um, it's important for the big dollars that are coming in that they buy into market share or uh, that capital isn't as excited. So we, we think that um, the companies that you just mentioned, along with the other 15 or 20 that we're likely to have in this fund that will be somewhat repetitive in verticals, uh, are very important to achieving um, our long-term goals, which are to uh, continue consolidation M&A and make sure that the bigger players that want a piece of this industry are able to do so with a buy versus build mentality. Got it. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Do the founders in any of those companies ever feel kind of weird about it? Do they ever mention it to you? The founders, uh, you know, are very particular as they are in any industry. Um, the reason uh, that they allow us to do these types of things is because they have uh, a lot of respect for us. And we've spent a lot of years developing relationships and the respect in this industry such that they um, uh, don't that there's a conflict by having us on a cap table that um, is a competitor of theirs. Um, the reason is because we have been able to uh, achieve uh, that type of respect from uh, the industry and these founders. Otherwise, I don't think that they would uh, they would be doing these deals. The other reason is that they also know that there's a likelihood um, that M&A and consolidation will happen. Mm -hmm. And um, if the agreement and the structure is appropriate for the relationship with Arcadian and the business, uh, then it only is seen as a positive when those conversations do happen and they have been happening and have been happening for a long time. And, um, you know, it's not up to us if that happens, but it certainly is helpful um, because those conversations we'll have to uh, reach a uh, tipping point at some point in time. And it's only beneficial to have somebody like-minded involved, um, whether the deal happens or not is up to the founders, but we can certainly be helpful. 
Got it. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, let's talk about the other side of the equation, um, your your own raising of money. Um, how do you build those relationships with LPs and, you know, kind of talk about your thesis going to them, the touching the plant versus not touching the plant? How was that process, uh, raising the fund? Um, early on, it was a little more difficult because, you know, for Halliburton exists, people had to have confidence that the oil industry was going to be an, an industry, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so uh, people like the fact that our investments were in a different category from a regulation standpoint than if you were touching the plant, uh, but uh, they still needed to see things grow. Now that what we had predicted has happened with the plant touching businesses uh, being overvalued and being corrected. Um, uh, you know, we're starting to see that benefit translate to non-plant touching companies because as cannabis and hemp become more widely available and cheaper for the consumer, that just means that there's a significant uptick in the amount of data and transactions and software and media that needs to happen. So, um, you know, it's a little bit easier now, uh, also with the funds, uh, great performance, um, that conversation has changed dr- tremendously. And, you know, Brandon, the thing I found in my career is that, you know, there's no substitute for hard work and all that type of stuff. But the best sales thing that you can have is to have conversations about what you're going to do. Whether people join that or not is up to them. But at some point, if you continue to execute and succeed, uh, it's very hard for them to ignore. So conversations we've had for years now are coming to fruition uh, because of the success and because we've been um, accurate thus far with our predictions. It can always change, but so far we're uh, feeling pretty uh, confident. Um, so I think that as an investor, it's uh, if you look at the three phases of opportunities in this industry, very hard not to um, have some agreement with the fact that phase two presents the best opportunity to invest today, uh, given that these companies are still a little bit uh, smaller, but uh, very easy to see that 2019 is a big uh, year for these types of businesses. So um, the other reason is that when you look at institutional dollars, um, they cannot play with the plant touching businesses. Mm-hmm. And we don't think that they're going to be able to uh, for another year or, or more. Um, you know, hemp is obviously a little bit of a different story, which is going to be great for everybody. Yep. But with the Canadian markets uh, doing what they're doing now, which again, we predicted um, not that these companies won't continue to grow by volume, which in some cases they'll grow by volume at such a pace that it'll offset the valuation correction. But most of those companies are significantly overvalued. And, um, and so uh, when you, when you kind of look at it and think about the big institutional book buyers not having confidence in those markets, uh, we feel pretty good with the conversations we had with those figures that they um, do believe in the industry's growth and that uh, they now feel that the industry's mature enough where they can invest in the industry, in America, with bankers and on public markets they know and trust 
um, and our companies are fit that bill. Mm-hmm. They will not be able to invest in a cannabis grow in the United States through big banks, through big public markets anytime in the near future. Um, so that is an added confidence boost to our investors, knowing that we have uh, the most mature products that the bigger dollars can get involved with. Right. And and sort of the homegrown idea there. I, I mean, uh, it's been driving me crazy, all the money that goes into public Canada. And I'm like, no, there's great companies here. There, Do it. You can do it. Like, yeah, no, that's cool that it's sort of uh, it's coming that way. Um, it brings up an interesting question of structure. I've had a lot of investors come on this show and talk about how private equity is the right model because they want to control everything. They want to install their own management, etc. Why have you sort of chosen to be more of a passive investor versus like, you know, starting it yourself and owning everything like others have? Been in private equity my entire career. And I know what that means. Private equity really is for very mature companies. And um, the other like end of private equity if is leverage buyouts. And, um, you know, when you're doing those types of deals, uh, they need to be at scale or past scale, and these companies aren't. Um, although I still consider Arcadian uh, a private equity fund uh, because we're investing in growth rounds where there is enough scale, uh, with the industries on uh, phase two is not mature enough to be true private equity. So I think anybody investing in these companies that consider themselves private equity is um, is not uh, defining it correctly. Mm-hmm. If you are private equity and you're doing some of these, um, you know, distressed deals for cultivation or something like that, that's a little bit different. Um, but these, these companies are very difficult to be in the private equity. The reason venture capital is more important is because there are 10 other great funds out there like ours. I think a lot of people put us in the top 10. Um, maybe there's 15 funds of relevancy now that do these types of deals. And there's no reason for everyone to compete. If you take 51% of a deal, the time that's required to manage that business is significant. And if you're a sub 50 million or sub hundred million dollar fund, there's no way you have the capital based on fees to dedicate the time and effort to those deals. Mm-hmm. Um if you do, then it's hard to do uh, enough deals in your portfolio to give your investors, you know, a, a diversified hedged bet on the industry. Um, so I think that it's really important to be venture as your inv- as an investor. I think these founders appreciate that, and that's the type of investors they look for. They don't want people coming in, pushing them around, taking fifty one percent, telling them what they can or can't do when they're in their A and B round. It's just not possible. Yep. Um, so I think that it's important for the founders to feel like we're all on their team. I think it's important for the funds to be involved in the same couple of companies and not all try to own 51% of 10 different companies trying to do the same thing. That doesn't mm-hmm. work for anybody. Um, so I, I do think that our approach to the industry is very collaborative and uh, we only like to be involved with companies that feel that collaboration is the key to success um, and uh, have funds involved in our deals that feel the same way. Got it. Yeah, no, that, that makes good sense. So what is maybe the target 
ownership percentage? And how much of these companies are you looking to take? Do you, how much do you lead? How much do you follow? Take me through that analysis a little bit. Somewhere between five and 25% would be the uh, target amount. Um, if you're looking at a portfolio that has two or three investments and 10 or 12 sticky verticals on the ancillary side, you know, you're, you're, you're probably in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 companies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not possible really to be a fund larger than a hundred million and, um, and allocate capital to these types of deals. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to have to, and some funds are around that size or bigger, but they touch the plant, different CapEx businesses, of course. Mm-hmm. But from uh, these types of companies' viewpoints, you know, they're they're raising two to $10 million on like 30 to $50 million valuations. Yep. Um, so if there's 25 or 30 of those out there and you're a sub $100 million fund with a 2% management fee, um, you can't possibly lead 25 deals. It's just not doable. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you need to rely on your relationships with other fund managers that um, they can say, hey, uh, you know, have you looked at this deal? Yep, we've been looking at it for a year or two. Great, we think we're going to lead it. Wonderful. Uh, what do you think the deal looks like? Oh, wow, that's very similar to how we think it looks. Um, send over your lead uh, diligence report with legal and analysis and all those things. We take that and then we do our own. Um, my partner is a, from Cowan, um, lifelong investment banker. I think he's as good as there is in the world at this. He'll look at that and he'll do his own diligence, mm-hmm. but it allows for us to piggyback off uh, someone who we respect's work uh, and then do our own, which allows for us to follow on with the same terms. 99% of the time would have been the same we had. Um, in some cases we have to do a side letter for a few things that we think are important for Arcadian, but, uh, to a certain degree, um, you know, that's how those things work. At the same time, we're leading our fair share of deals and we want those funds to be involved in our businesses, not compete. And they feel the same way. Uh, so we do the work and do what the amount of work that is required to lead a deal professionally. And um, when people want to join a company that we're leading, we provide them the same level of diligence and they can use that to decide for their uh, their team if it makes sense. Very cool. Uh, and how long does that process typically take? If somebody sends you uh, as a lead, right they say, okay, here's all our lead analysis and, and everything. How long does it usually take you to turn that around and, and make a decision? My partner, Krishnan, would be a better one to answer that. Again, each vertical is a little different. If I've already done two deals in the same vertical, it will be a little easier for us. If it's uh, a deal that we haven't done yet in a particular vertical, it's going to take a lot more time. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, our team has a, a lot of experience in a various amount of verticals, uh, but there are some that we aren't as comfortable with and we have to bring in outside experts, which we do in every case. If it's a bioscience deal, um, you know, I haven't done a lot of those. Krishnan at Cowan being in the healthcare side and bioscience side has done those his entire career. Mm. Um, so where I might not know very much, he's going to know a lot and can pull resources to help figure that out. But a bioscience company, even given his background, is a very different type of diligence than a, you know, point of sale software 
or that we've done a couple deals in. So I think they're all a little bit different. Got it. When did you realize that you sort of needed that kind of support when bringing Krishna in a more traditional eye banker, Cowan? When did you determine like, oh, I really need some help here? Um, we always knew that we needed that. The first year of building this, um, I was involved with a, uh, a couple of family offices that had a tremendous amount of resources. So we always had analysts and diligence experts and legal uh, relationships that we could lean on. Um, plus, I've spent you know 16 years in finance and, um, uh, of course, like everyone early on, have spent enough years uh, modeling and uh, doing financial projections that, you know, I just had to wear a lot of hats um, mm-hmm. and rely on who we had. Again, when you're uh, still 2% of a whatever type of uh, fund uh, clothes you have to work with, it's pretty minimal. So um, it's standard for uh, for new funds, which this is my fourth or fifth fund to be involved with. So it's not a new uh, effort, but you know, it's a new industry and a new fund. So you just have to work with what you have. And I just had to do a lot of that work and rely on certain people early on. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Must be nice to sort of grow beyond that and and have uh, the support necessary after. It, it is, and, yeah. and and that's something that my my entire career we've had, and it's not like we didn't know we were going to need more people, and we'll continue to need more people. Um, but at this point in time, uh, you know, we've got a very uh, uh, well thought out team, and um, we feel like we have everything we need at this point to do institutional caliber work. Mm-hmm. Um, you touched on it briefly, but how did you get into cannabis? Were you an enthusiast? Uh, you know, did you just see the opportunity? Take us back a little bit, if you would. I think, like most people, uh, you start to see the benefits uh, in your immediate life, whether it be through a family member with an illness, uh, which in my case, I had three or four family members with cancer and uh, PTSD and some things that were very serious that this helped. Um, of course you start to read things of the way it's changing people's lives. And then as a football player, uh, that's also where it really hit home. My father was a NFL player. I spent a little bit of time there as well. And, um, you know, I saw how many athletes were utilizing these plants to treat themselves without having to use, um, synthetic medicines uh, that I found was very helpful. And when I looked at my father's age of football players that are in their late, their seventies, really late sixties, seventies, these, every one of them had, um, some things they were dealing with because of their football career. And, uh, we got to see them, uh, utilize these medicines to really help their life. Uh, and then most recently my grandmother with Alzheimer's, uh, was was able to um, uh, really help the end of her life. And um, so, you know, you hear this every day and everyone, I think, will experience the benefit that these products can bring to people's lives, even in minor forms like sleep aids and anxiety relief and things of that nature, um, you know, are, are starting to become very apparent. So uh, those were some of the reasons why early on, um, but also I saw the economic benefit and felt like 
I had had a great career and was ready to build something uh, in a new emerging industry. And, and this one um, had the most upside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, fascinating combination there. I want to touch on the football stuff just briefly. There's this whole Canna athlete movement, a lot of retired NFL and NBA and other athletes that are in the cannabis industry, building brands, building other businesses. How tied are in are you to sort of that network and, and how much do you lean on that for opportunities or investors or any of that? Is that, uh, is that a good network? It's a good network, um, and you're correct. There's uh, a lot of these um, athletes that are uh, starting to get behind the movement, and most recently, some that are even current uh, uh, players in various professional mm-hmm. leagues, which has mm-hmm. uh, not been the case in the past. It's been all retired people up until recently. Um, so that that is great, but it's a you know when you look at the seven and a half billion people in the world, that's a very, very, very small amount of people. Um, and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, it hasn't been as helpful as we would hope for the same reason that, um, I'm, I'm honestly more, uh, uh, disappointed in the amount of attention the veterans have received. There's a a lot more veterans of (laughs) war than there are veterans of athletics that um, are fighting for this to be something to help their lives. And I don't think either of the two groups have um, received the attention they deserve. That being said, uh, there are uh, groups of people that can't be ignored and nobody's ignoring. And that's small children with epilepsy, with mothers that have no other choice to save their child other than having their child's piece of their brain cut out and all they need is some CBD. Mm. That type of thing is, uh, getting a lot of attention and it's, you can't read it and not feel it. Right. Um, and so, you know, as great as athletes are, as great as veterans are, there's a lot of people in this world. I think everybody in this world will be a consumer of something from this plant, whether it be a, in the form of hemp textiles, fabrics, and hempcrete and hemp fiber, whether it be uh, a, a product on the grocery store uh, shelf that uh, pretty much all of them are up for discussion. It's just a molecule that can be infused in anything. So um, that group of people is big, obviously. Everybody goes to the grocery store. And then you think about the over-the-counter and behind-the-counter medicines that are going to be available. And that's a bigger population. So, you know, we think about it in terms of macro uh, benefit. And when you look at seven and a half billion people, what moves the needle? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, fascinating way to look at it for sure. Um, and you touched on my no- next question, which is what do you want to see built in the future? Is there a hole in the industry? You talked about a few different topics there. Anything else you want to add to that? What do you want to see built? Um, you know, that's a long answer because we see just about everything that's being built. And, it, you know, to a certain degree, you feel like Steve Jobs must have felt when he was sitting in his garage with a person or two trying to uh, figure out how to put all this technology together to benefit consumers in a massive way. And the plant's no different. This is just a science technology instead of a computer technology. Mm -hmm. And when you can line things up and put them in products that benefit people, the uh, amount of things to be built is really limitless. Got it. Um, well, let's uh, just shift gears for a second. I love to connect the work you sort of do during the day 
with what kind of cannabis consumer you are. Um, so yeah, w- what are you into? Flowers, vapes, edibles? What, what do you gravitate towards? Um, I typically gravitate towards, uh, you know, or, uh, oils basically at this point. And the reason is because uh, the work that's been done uh, in, in, in labs has been so tremendous. I also do believe in the uh, um, in the entourage effect that is delivered from having the entire flower. Yep. But it's hard to disagree with the fact that our body receives uh, cannabinoids uh, differently, and everyone receives them differently. Um, one person could consume a flower that seems physiologically to be the the same as another, but we aren't. And um, no flower in the world is received the same as, a, as another person because not the flower, but because of the person, um, the person's receptors, both CB1 and CB2. And, um, you know, the, not to mention the fact that flower strains uh, can vary from the same farm and certainly across state lines when these companies license that to another mm-hmm. state, it's going to be different. So, um, you know, I think that the uh, manufactured form where they can isolate the molecules and uh, prove out their efficacy and uh, and dose things appropriately gives you a better chance to make sure that your cell at the cell level, the cells are receiving exactly what it needs and not a bunch of what it doesn't. Yeah, really cool cannabinoid company here in San Francisco called Level. Maybe you're you're familiar with them, but doing exactly what you just described. Yeah, um, cool. Well, this has been an excellent interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. I'll give you just a minute to plug whatever you'd like, or are you hiring for anything, or, or what are you looking for? Um, thank you for uh, uh, allowing us to do that. Um, you know, we. Uh, think that the most important thing anyone listening can do is to find professionals that are uh, spending their lives uh, sorting through everything that's out there. And it's not dissimilar than if you went back to late 1990s and had a few dollars and you wanted to invest in the technology or internet or dot-com craze, um, you know, 99.9% of people are better off investing in an Andreessen Horowitz, for example, than they are trying to find two or three or five companies they think are going to go be Uber, Facebook, you know, Mm -hmm. Google, whatever. Um, And so I would encourage people to, uh, you know, read and learn. I think that's probably the most important thing that's happening right now, educating uh, the p- consumers and the uh, people out there interested in this industry. Uh, but even then, there is still a largely um, unregulated industry with a lot of uncertainty that uh, you would be much better off making sure that you align with professionals uh, in this industry rather than trying to do it on your own. Fair enough. It'll be well worth the management fees, whatever whatever they are. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not investing in cannabis and hemp for a 5% returns. This is not supposed to replace your bond or even your real estate right. portfolio. Um, you know, in, the, in 2019, I think a lot of asset allocators are trying to figure out how they're going to deliver a blended portfolio return to their investors. And this industry is one that can generate very large returns. And so 
Um, If you're looking for 20, 30, 40% returns, those aren't outside of the question here. Uh, But you um, uh, should be happy to pay somebody a few points to make sure that you do that because it's not taking your 5% return to three. It may take your 35% return to 33. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, it's well worth it. Well, very well said, Matt. And thanks again. Uh, I think we all really learned a lot. Thanks for your time. Appreciate you.